We are in Genesis chapter 2 once again. This morning I'd like to begin for you a new series that I've entitled Trees with a Message. I hope you won't consider a series on the trees of the Bible to be strange. It might be a little bit unusual. But I want to remind you something that's very true about Scripture. I, I sometimes call it the inexhaustibility of Scripture. And sometimes I've been known to make this statement, you know, God never wastes anything. When you think about God's Word, how true that is, God never makes even a, a little comment off to the side, but what that's important to us. And sometimes meaning falls and rises even over the difference between a singular and a plural. You remember that? instance in Genesis, or rather, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 3, and Paul is talking about the promise to Abraham, and he points out the fact that God didn't say, and to his seeds as of many, but to his seed, because ultimately the fulfillment of that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, his seed as of one. Isn't that interesting that here you have a place where God calls attention to the importance, even between the fact <clears throat> that he spoke in the singular and not in the plural. So why should it be thought a strange thing to us that everything in the Bible would be infused with the message of God, that God makes no mistakes in any of those things? I think of the flora and fauna of the Bible, uh, the plants and the animals of the Bible. Of course, trees are part of the plants in the Bible. But if you want to know just how capable God is of uh, infusing a message into those things, all you have to do really is go to the book of Proverbs and you see the, th the types of things that Solomon spoke about. He spoke about trees. He spoke about animals. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, as an example. And of course, the geography of the Bible. There's many, many, many lessons that can be learned from the geography of, of the Bible. So the Bible is inexhaustible. And what I mean by that is, is you know, a uh, Someone may preach the Bible for an entire lifetime, and I'm of the opinion, really, that you hardly scratch the surface. I really like the way that Spurgeon brought this out in a comment that he made on this very fact when he said this, What a storehouse the Bible is, since a man may continue to preach it from it for years and still find that there is more to preach than, what, than when he began to discourse upon it. And that, truthfully, beloved, that's been my experience as well. I think the more you preach, the more you realize there are so many different directions that you can go in the Bible. And so this morning we're going to start talking about the trees of the Bible. And I'll give you a little, a little, just a little overview or a little outline of how I'm going to be doing this. First of all, I want to talk about the three most prominent trees in Scripture. They are real trees in the sense that they are literal trees, although we really don't know what kind of tree they were. I call them the towering trees of Scripture, and we're introduced to them either directly or indirectly right here in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. We have the tree that's the subject of today's message, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We also have introduced for us the tree of life. Those are directly spoken of. Indirectly spoken of is the tree of Calvary, because in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, when we have the first promise of redemption, and God speaks about the fact that he's going to put enmity between thee and the woman, that is between the serpent and the woman, and he speaks about the fact that it shall bruise thy heel and thou shalt crush his head, uh, of course that was accomplished on the cross of Calvary. And there are five or six or seven references in the New Testament to the fact that the cross was a tree, and there's a specific reason for that, not for us to go into now, but when we get to that message. 
These three trees I'd like to call the towering trees of Scripture. They are the most prominent. Uh, they are in a class by themselves. They are unique. But then there are many trees of the Bible, and we may not try to speak about every one of them, that are just maybe, if we can use the terminology, ordinary type trees, the trees that were a part of the everyday uh, life in the Holy Land, uh, the land of Israel, the Bible land. And we could call those telling trees because so many of them are, as I say, infused with a message. And it'll be interesting to get to some of those and see what we can learn and see how the Bible actually uses trees to convey a message. But today we're going to be talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to call that the tree of probation. You know about probation? Did that ever happen to you before? Well, unfortunately, sometimes it has. Uh, you can have probation, if you think back to your school days, you can have probation in uh, a punitive sense. In other words, it's to punish. We've done something wrong, and so now we're on probation. <clears throat> or you can have uh, you can have probation that's not really punitive. <clears throat> it's simply meant to prove something. So, for example, sometimes you admit a student to school, and he hasn't done anything wrong. You're not punishing him for anything. He's a new student, and he's admitted on probation. Why is that? Because it's giving him two weeks or a month or however long the school determines that, that it's appropriate to do that to prove that he is how he represented himself to be, that he, he is who his parents represent him to be, and he is who his grades represent him to be on the transcripts that you received. And so it's an opportunity for him to prove himself. And this is very much what's going on in the Garden of Eden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's an opportunity for Adam and Eve to prove themselves, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the message today. Now, I hasten to say once again, so that we don't leave any misimpressions, this was a literal tree. This was a real tree. There's no allegory in this as such. There is a lot of symbolic meaning, but that doesn't mean that the tree was not a literal tree. It most certainly was, and God placed both of those trees in the midst, in a very prominent place in the garden. So the tree was real, but it certainly represented at least three things, and those three things are going to be a part, or are going to constitute today's message. First of all, in the first reference that we find to the tree, it's very obvious that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents a choice. Just think about the way God describes this tree. If you look down in your Bible at chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 2 and verse number 9, God calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, right now, we're not going to concentrate so much on the word knowledge as much as we are we're going to concentrate on the words good and evil. You see, a choice was represented there in the very way that the tree was represented and described to Adam and Eve. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it wasn't just any choice that it represented. It was, in fact, a moral choice. And if you're wondering, well, did Adam have any framework? Was Adam really in a position to understand these terms and to know what this moral choice involved? And the answer to that is he absolutely was. Because when you read the, the earlier question uh, chapters of Genesis, when God made all of the things, he pronounced them good. In fact, when we get down to chapter 1 and verse 31, it makes the statement, and God saw 
everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so here was Adam, and he was the centerpiece of God's creation, but all around him now in the garden were all of these good things that God had made, including the fact that God had most recently said it is not good for the man to be alone, and God observed, or let Adam, uh, more, more accurately, let Adam observe that he was alone as he named uh, all the different animals, uh, that there was not an help meet or suitable or fit for him. And, and God in compassion and God in loving kindness provided a help meet, suitable, fit for him so that he would have a companion in the garden. And so everywhere Adam looked, he not only knew that God was good, but he knew that everything that God had done for him and the very surroundings in which that God had placed him, everything he saw was good. And so in this sense, everything that has to do with something positive and everything that has to do with blessing, everything that has to do with man, man's happiness and his needs being provided, frame out our understanding, make a picture of what was good. And God, being the provider of these things, was that kind of a person. He was loving. He was kind. He was generous. He was gracious. He was and is good. So Adam had the opportunity to understand what good was by experience. But you know also there's a second way in, in which Adam had an, a framework to understand this because if he knew it by experience, he also knew it by predisposition. And what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, again, we have a statement in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 that reminds us that God made man in his what? He made man in his image. Well, if God was good, that means that there's a certain sense in which part of that image was conveyed to man, to Adam and to Eve, that they had a predisposition, you might say, a certain provisional holiness, a certain inclination that way, because that was how God made them. And I, I like to maybe refer to it as a provisional holiness. The, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 12 that God made man upright, that is righteous. So there was some form of provisional holiness and righteousness that was given to man in the garden. It only remained to be seen what Adam and Eve would do with it. Therefore, they most definitely had a framework in which to understand the choice that was being presented to them. But sadly, they made the wrong choice. And just as God sees us all in Adam, so it is that all of us made the same choice that day all of us chose not for good, but for its opposite, which was evil, which Adam certainly had a framework to understand evil as well, because God indicated that if Adam disobeyed him, that there would be a punishment. So when you think about this, we get over to chapter uh 2 verse 16 and verse 17, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So not only did he, had the, did he have the framework to understand what was good, he had the framework to understand that by disobeying God, that was evil and it was punishable. There was a punishment for doing that. And we all understand this because we tell our children uh, when we raise them, if you do this, there's a certain punishment whereby they understand that it's wrong to do that. The law tells us certain things. And we understand that if we disobey that, there's a punishment because in the sight of the law, it's deemed to be wrong to do that. 
So Adam understood right and wrong. But the choice he made that day is the choice that you and I made too. And you know, we prove that. What I'm referring to is the great theological truth that we come to in the New Testament, wherein we understand that God sees all of us in Adam and or in Christ. That is, in the mind of God, there are only two federal heads of the human race. One is Adam, and all of us are in Adam. All of us related to him by birth are in Adam. And those of us who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, he's the last Adam, and we are also in him. And the Bible tells us that in Adam all die, even so all those who are related to Christ by the new birth shall live, shall be made alive. Well, if you think about this for a moment, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, one man, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all sinned. All sinned. You see, we made, the, we made in God's eyes, we all made that choice that day. We are all the descendants of Adam. We have all chosen. See, if we quibble about this, if we have any questions about this, all we have to do is think about the little saying that you often hear about the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Every day we prove our lineage. Every day we prove our descent. Every day we prove our relationship to Adam, that we are sinners and that we did in fact make that same choice as Adam made that day. I was humored a little bit recently. I, I read a story about a little boy, and he walked into the room, and he saw that his dad was taking a nap, and that looked pretty good to him. And so he went and asked his mother, and she said, my dad's asleep. Can I take a nap? She said, no, there's things to do. In fact, go wake your father up. And the little boy went off, and a little while later, uh, it was quiet. The mom didn't hear anything, and so she went to check on things, and she found the little boy laid down there right by his dad, and they were both asleep. And in sort of the little cartoon caption, uh, however you might envision this, what she said uh, out loud to herself, but out loud was, hmm, apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Well, beloved, that's exactly the way it is with you and me. We are all the children of Adam. We have all made that choice. We as good as made that choice in the garden that day with Adam as his descendants. Sad, isn't it, that that was the choice? But a choice was definitely represented by the tree. And it was a choice with tragic consequences, as you and I certainly understand now. But secondly, there's something else. This tree also represented a way of life. Now what I want to do is kind of move forward more into the uh, narrative and come to chapter 3. And, of course, when chapter 3 opens, that's where we have the record of the uh, tempter coming in the form of the servant. And uh, now we realize that this tree was not just called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where we just spent a whole uh, few minutes talking about the implications of choice between good and evil, but the tree was also represented as granting that knowledge. Let's think about the knowledge factor in this for a moment. If you go down to chapter 3 and verse 6, after the evil one, the tempter, had, uh, had, had done everything in his power to just cast the hook out with the juiciest bait possible on it, by tempting Eve into believing that somehow God was unfair, that God had deprived them of this knowledge, that if they only had this knowledge themselves, 
that they would be on a plane with God and that somehow it was better to be on a plane with God and to understand good and evil, to know good and evil. Boy, when you look back on it and you think about it now, oh, what a horrible lie, what a horrible distortion that truly was. But in verse 6, one of the things that Eve saw was that the tree was desired to make one wise. Now, let's think for a moment about the implications of this. Just put on your thinking cap for a moment, because, see, what this really means is, is that Adam and Eve could choose to rely on God's wisdom. What was God's wisdom? God's wisdom was he put the tree off limits. God said, don't go there. It's not a good thing. So they could agree with God, that God's wisdom could be trusted, that God made the right choice for them by putting the tree off limits, or they could listen to the serpent, in which case they would essentially regard their own wisdom as superior. That is, that following the advice of Satan and choosing for something that God had put off limits was a better choice, represented a superior wisdom. Of course, there are more implications because once you and I decide that our wisdom is better than God's wisdom, we become independent from God. We act on our own. We don't necessarily go to the Bible and say, what would God have me do? Or perhaps we already know what God would have us do, but Instead, relying on our own wisdom, we decide to do what we think is best, which is exactly what Adam and Eve did that day. It implies not only independence, but it implies disloyalty. God was their maker. God was good. God had put them in paradise. And now comes along the tempter, someone bringing along the idea that God isn't quite what he represents himself to be. Put on your thinking cap. Think for yourself. You, you can reason this out. Oh, they reasoned it out all right. And with tragic consequences, because this disloyalty, in unvarnished terms, was really disobedience. So here's what we can kind of summarize here. The lifestyle, it was, it was a choice of a way of life. It was a choice of a lifestyle. They could continue in self-reliance on God, trusting him to make the right choices because they knew he was good, trusting that what he put off limits needed to stay off limits, and using everything around them to intuit and understand that God had never proven to be anything other than good. He had surrounded them with every possible good thing. And they could continue in self-reliance on God to accept God's opinion and wisdom in the matter as being superior and enjoy his gracious gifts, or they could assert themselves. They could regard their own wisdom as superior, which would lead to their own self-effort, that is, their own way of creating, maintaining, and establishing their happiness. This is exactly what Eve did when you read verses 4 through 6. Let's look at it. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit, and did eat thereof, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. 
what were they doing? They were essentially saying, let's take matters into our own hands. It'll be better that way. We, we can create a happiness that's even an improvement over what God has given to us. Oh, beloved, do you see the tragedy of this? And do you see how to this very day you and I are marred and tarnished by that exact choice that they made because it left us with a sin nature and by nature this is exactly how we are this is exactly the way of life apart from God's grace that we pursue we rely upon ourselves does the bible tell us that it certainly does all we like sheep have gone astray it says in Isaiah 53:6 we've all turned to our own ways what is that? That's independence from God. That's self-reliance. Don't need God. My way is better. Isn't that what the sheep kind of, in essence, does? The shepherd is there with his rod, guiding. They know his voice. They follow some stray, some figure. Well, there's a little morsel over here on the side that's a little greener. There's some water over there. It looks so good, but the shepherd knows it's not good. There's a danger there, and so he leads them aside from it. And this is exactly what God was doing. He knew that the best choice was to put that tree off limits. But Adam and Eve, they asserted themselves. They became self-reliant. They embraced what they thought in their own wisdom was a superior wisdom which involved basically their own reliance, their own self-effort, and their own ability to go on and create a life for themselves that was just as happy, if not more, than what God had presented to them. And beloved, I say to you that this is the distinction that exists to this very day. It has always existed between trusting God, faith, which is always God's way, trusting that God will supply every need that we have, trusting that God will provide his gracious gifts and what he chooses not to provide, he realizes and does so not because he's some type of cosmic ogre, but because he recognizes that it's not good. And we can know this. But instead of relying on God's grace... We rely on our own efforts. And you know, nowhere is this more abundantly plain than when you start talking about salvation. You just stop the average person and ask them what they think about how to go to heaven, and you'll almost invariably get some rendition of good works. Man is still set on creating his own paradise, and we have all kinds of organizations now trying to accomplish what only God can accomplish. We have the United Nations, and then we have all of our educational and it's no different than it was in the book of Genesis when God told mankind to spread out and replenish the earth and they thought they knew better and they all bunched up and built the Tower of Babel in their own self-effort, see, their own self-effort to reach heaven, to bridge the gap between them and God. And that is exactly what people are still doing. They rely upon themselves. It's good works. Even if it's religion, it's some sort of code you keep. It's something you need to do. And if the good works outweigh the bad works, if I help enough little old ladies across the street or whatever else it is that people come up with and God says, you know, it does not work that way. You cannot save yourself. But if you trust in me, if you trust in my grace, if you trust what I've provided for you on the cross of Calvary in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his shed blood, if you trust that, 
I will forgive your sins. I will make you my child. I will give you a home in heaven. What a, a glorious, that to me, beloved, is one of the most liberating truths, if not the most liberating truth that you will ever come to realize that God's dealings with men are on the basis of faith and grace. We are saved by grace through faith. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and through grace alone. By faith are you saved, by grace are you saved through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I was thinking a little bit about a story that I read recently about the legendary quarterback for uh, Dallas, the Dallas team, uh, the Dallas Cowboys. And of course, I'm talking about Roger Staubach. Uh, maybe you don't know this, but one of the really intriguing things is, is that uh, Roger Staubach, for the most part, unless it was an emergency type of situation, he was not allowed to call his own plays. And Coach Landry, uh, always sent the plays in from the sideline. And later in telling about this, uh, Roger Staubach confessed that in the beginning, this was something of a trial for him. Uh, that even though he knew Coach Landry was a genius in football, he still, there was always that temptation. Why shouldn't I be able to call my own place? Why shouldn't I be able to be the star? Why is it always Coach Landry? The real thing that it boiled down to, though, and this is what he tells us he came to realize, is would he allow pride to rule his life and ignore his coach in some attempt to make himself the star and assert his own independence? Or would he listen to the coach and do what he wanted? Later, when Staubach was telling this, he said, I faced up to the most, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony fulfillment, and victory. But Adam didn't do that. Adam decided he was going to call the plays. Adam decided he knew better than the coach on the sidelines. A way of life, it's come to be that for us, right? Even as believers, we still have that temptation. Our first reaction so often is, is to use our own cunning, our own wisdom, our own ingenuity, or our own inclinations We'll do a better job. Somehow we wouldn't. We would never say that, but that's kind of the implication, isn't it? We'll do a better job than God. We can trust ourselves to create more happiness and blessings, but oh no, beloved, it doesn't work out that way, as this story in the garden tells us. So let's look at the ground we've come over so far. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. First of all, that tree represented a choice. Secondly, it represented a way of life. But let's conclude with this. Thirdly, it represented an outcome. In some ways, we've already been talking about that, but you really see that unfold in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 3. Let's look at those verses together. Genesis 3, verses 7 to 10. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, 
and I hid myself. And of course, the very next question that God asked him was, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree which I commanded thee not to eat of it? So just in those verses, look what the outcome proved to be. In practice, for the first time, they knew their eyes were opened. Wasn't such a great thing, was it? Satan had told them, the tempter had told them, oh, your eyes will be opened and you'll know good and evil and you'll be just like God. Well, their eyes were opened now. How'd this work out? Was this a good thing? No, it wasn't a good thing because with the opening of their eyes, now they experienced shame. You see, chapter 2 ends with telling us they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. But now they were ashamed, and they went and found those fig leaves and sewed them together, and they even told God, we did this because we were naked, and they were experiencing shame for the first time in their lives. How good a feeling is that? Talk about what's good. Talk about the difference, the choice between good and evil. Boy, I'll tell you, shame is a real thrill, isn't it? Shame is really good. No, I, of course, speak facetiously. Shame is no good. No one likes to feel that way. Associated with shame is guilt because they knew that they had disobeyed God, and with shame and guilt came fear. They hid themselves from God. Aren't we this way all the time? People do everything they can not to confront God. People do everything they can to avoid being confronted with God. People don't want to hear gospel messages because they don't want to be reminded of their sin. Because we know, deep down inside, we know. Even our conscience bears witness to this truth. And so look at the Look at the polar opposites. Just think about this with me for a few moments. They exchanged blessings for a curse. This is the outcome. They had blessings. Now they had a curse. What kind of blessings? Everything in the garden that was good. I mean, we can talk about the, the water as chapter 2 does with the, the rivers and the lush vegetation that all of that, uh, the, all of that uh, made possible for them. We can talk about the blessing of each other that God made Adam for Eve and Eve for Adam. We can talk about the animals, the birds. Think how must it have been to enjoy that garden, to listen to those birds with their unsullied songs, to have animals that, that they could interact with and enjoy that they did not have to fear and the animals did not fear them. All that changed. And the word curse is used. Verse number 17 of chapter 3, and Adam, and unto Adam God said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Outcomes. They traded God's blessings for a curse, a curse that's still with us. They traded life for death. You know, it's really interesting to contemplate what would have ha happened. This tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was a tree of probation, as I've said, because their righteousness and their holiness was provisional. Had they made the right choice, 
one can only assume that they would have had continued free access to the tree of life and would have eaten of that and have lived forever in that state with God. Because this is what God expresses when you get to the end of chapter 3. He drives them from the garden, and he does that. Uh, Verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, Behold, man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, it says, the Lord God sent them forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And now death entered into the world. Death that Adam never had to know. Death that animals would have never known. Death that you and I would never have to experience because the wages of sin is death. And God said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Death. They traded life for death. And thirdly, thinking about polar opposites, they exchanged righteousness for condemnation. I was talking about earlier the fact that the deep theological truths that are here are sort of only latent. They're not brought out until we get to the New Testament. But this, of course, is uh, what we call uh, progressive revelation, and we understand that the Bible is this way. So if you think about the choice between or the outcome of, of righteousness instead of condemnation, if we come over to the book of Romans, there are two key verses. Let me read these for you. One of them I already quoted, Romans 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. So one man sin enters into the world, and with it death. And it says, and so death passed upon all men, for that all sinned. That is, you and I were as good as in the loins of Adam that day, making that very same choice. But when you get down to verse 19, you see the outcome. You see the result of this. What it would have been versus what it was. When in verse 19, it says this, For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, that's Jesus Christ, many shall be righteousness. And verse, many shall be made righteous. And verse 18 says, Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Remember I talked before about the fact that God sees us all in one of two or both. We are all the children of Adam. And as the children of Adam, we are the inheritors of death, and we are the inheritors not of righteousness, which was probational in that garden but unrighteousness. We are not just. We are not right before God. But thank God there's a Savior. And the righteousness that we need to be acceptable in God's presence is available by being in Christ, by knowing Christ as our personal Savior. Oh, beloved, think about all the unrighteousness that exists in this world. Think about our own unrighteousness. We think about the condemnation, but you know there is therefore now no condemnation 
to them which are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Condemnation in Adam, that's the outcome. That's the polar opposite of the righteousness that could have been his to keep. No, no condemnation in Christ. Ours in him, but we need a savior to get back there. Outcomes. They traded blessings for a curse. They traded life in all of its fullness for death. They traded a righteousness they could have been confirmed in for condemnation. And truly, beloved, paradise was lost. Do you know the reference? Do you know Paradise Lost is, of course, the epic uh, poem that was written by the British poet John Milton? It's old. Uh, you hardly have taken a, an English class in school but what you've heard of Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost was written by Milton, and so was the companion to it, Paradise Regained. More about that in a different message. But Paradise Lost first occurred in, or, or, or uh, appeared in 1667. And of course, it recounts the Adam and Eve in the garden. It recounts the fall. It recounts Satan and the temptation. Milton says in the beginning, in book number one, that his whole purpose in writing this was to justify the ways of God to men. But of course, as the story unfolds, it's kind of interesting the light in which Adam is portrayed. On the one hand, when Adam realizes and learns that Eve has been has succumbed to the temptation of the evil one and she has sinned and, and taken of the fruit, Adam reasons that she was made from his flesh, that they are bound to one another because of that. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, Adam had said. If she was going to die, then he would die too, because their lives in his view were inseparable. And so in this sense, Milton sort of portrays Adam as a, an epic figure, which is why it's called an epic poem, almost a hero figure. But Adam is no hero except in that sense, only in the sense that he demonstrated a certain love for Eve, perhaps we might come to that conclusion. But Milton goes on to make the real point, and that point is, is that the woman was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived, and Paul tells us this in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. Adam was not deceived, Paul tells us. And so for this reason, Adam was the greater sinner, and that's the exactly exact point that, that Paul is making. Adam was the great sinner there. Paradise truly was lost, beloved. But thank God, there was a promise. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the very first, the incipient, the very beginning reference that we have in the Bible to the gospel. God says, and I will put enmity between thee, he says this to the, to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
Thank God we have the promise, a promise of a coming Redeemer. Thank God we have a substitute. It's kind of interesting to see how it was all going to work, and the hint of that is all here in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, where it says, Unto Adam also and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. And, oh, beloved, we realize that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, that for God to obtain those coats that he gave them for a covering, animals had to die and their blood be shed, a foreshadowing, the earliest hint of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood shed on Calvary in order to pay for our sins and to be the, to give us the forgiveness of sins in order that we might be also clothed in his righteousness, the robes of his righteousness. So thank God for the promise. Thank God for the substitute. And thank God for the last Adam. For In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22, it says, For as in Adam all die, and even so in Christ shall all be made alive. What does this mean? It means what I've already said. It means that just as all of us are related to Adam by physical birth, we die. We are all sinners, just as Adam. Even so, everyone who is united to Christ, who is in Christ by the new birth, is granted life, eternal life. And as I said earlier, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now, if we believe in Jesus, as John 5, 24 said, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Thank God for the promise. Thank God for the substitute. Thank God for the last Adam, that substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for the privilege of being in him. Well, let me ask you a question today. Are you? You don't have to really worry about whether or not you're in Adam because we all are. We're all Adam's sons and daughters. In Christ now, that's another matter. And how does that happen? Well, let's just sum it up this way. That verse in John 5, 24, Jesus reached out and he said this, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. He that heareth my word. Are you hearing God's word today? Are you convicted in your heart that you don't belong to Jesus Christ? You don't have a right relationship with God? You've never been born again. You've never been saved. Do you understand the problem, the reason, as we've talked about it this morning, that we're sinners, that the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord because God commended, he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place. Thank God for the substitute on the cross of Calvary. He took our sin. He took our death. He took our punishment. You just need to be willing to come to him to make an honest confession of that fact that you know you're a sinner who needs to be saved, that you want Jesus, that you're willing to turn from your sins and to embrace the Christ who is freely offered to us in the gospel. And the Bible promises in Romans 10:13 that for each of us who do this, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I hope that you will consider doing that if you've never been born again. You just need to call out to God 
in your own way as best you know how. Call out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Let him know you want his forgiveness. Embrace the gift of God freely offered in the gospel. Ask Christ to forgive you and cleanse you. And you will find, my friend, just as the thief on the cross of Calvary found when Jesus turned to him and said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Paradise is regained when we accept the Lord Jesus Christ. We may not fully experience all of it until we leave this world and until we're with the Lord and until we see the new heaven and the new earth. But that'll be our destination. That'll be our lot. Trust Jesus today. And if you have trusted Jesus, join me in thanks and praise to God. Thank God for the promise of the gospel. Genesis 3.15. Thanks to God for the substitute pictured in those animals. Adam being clothed and Eve in the skins of those animals like you and I have come to be clothed in the, the impeccable righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank God for this last Adam. Thank God for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless each of you today and give you a great week.